Some of you have jobs in which you attend multiple meetings a week. Some of those meetings are pro forma. Some might be boring. Others might be immensely interesting to you. And sometimes you have a meeting that is very serious. A meeting of the most importance. A one-on-one meeting with a person who is of great importance. A man named James was preparing for such a meeting. He put on his very best clothes. He worked all through the different scenarios in his mind of how the meeting could go. He was ready to answer every question that he could possibly think of. This was an important meeting. You see, he was going to God's house. And he had never been there before. He didn't know who he was going to talk to when he got to God's house or what the day would bring. He had the common feeling that many of us feel before something like that, before a big meeting. He had that curious combination of trepidation and excitement. He didn't sleep well the night before, but he was about as ready as he could be. And early in the morning, he arrived in Jerusalem And he went to God's house, the temple. I wonder if this is what some of the Jews might have felt upon their first visit to the temple. I mean, they knew that they probably wouldn't see the master of the house. But after all, only the high priest would be in his presence on very rare occasion. But who knows? Who knows? This is God we're talking about. He can do whatever he wants. What would one think upon going to the temple for the very first time? And was there an underlying curious combination of hope and fear that's met with desire? I mean, surely there must have been a hope that they would encounter God himself. Why else would you go to the temple? Today, as we consider uh, and continue our series in the Gospel of John a series that we're calling Life Giver, as we look at the person and the work of Jesus, Jesus is going to the temple. And he's going to the temple that is very crowded with Jews and Gentiles from all over the world because he's coming at the time of the Passover. Now Jesus had been there before, but today he was coming to the temple to make a very specific point. And the point was this. This is no longer the place where you will meet with God. And so with that, please look with me at John chapter 2, starting at verse 13. The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem In the temple he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and money changers sitting there. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. So the Jews said to him, 
What sign do you do? What sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, it took 46 years to build this temple, and you will raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people. And he needed no one to bear witness about man for he himself knew what was in man. The scene is set. And from the very beginning, the tension rises. Jesus enters the temple courts. The temple was the place where people would come to pray and to offer sacrifices to God in accordance with the Jewish law. If there was any place that Jesus, the Son of God, should have felt at home, it would be in the temple. And yet this wasn't the case. The Passover was happening. And this meant that the dispersed Jews from the known world would come back to Jerusalem to celebrate the festival. And in doing so, they would come to the temple and they would offer their sacrifices to God. And they would give of their offerings and they would pay the temple tax. And just to give you a glimpse into what this must have felt like and looked like. Historians believe that around the time of Jesus, the population of Jerusalem was in between 80 and 100,000 people. And there were about 4 million Jews dispersed throughout the known world. Now, during the time of the Passover, many of them and many Gentiles would come back to Jerusalem. And this would make the city swell from a population of about 100,000 people to in between 2 and 3 million people during that short period of time. And you can imagine, when you have that type of pilgrimage, there are all kinds of difficulties. (laughs) And there are all kinds of opportunities. For the foreigners, it was difficult. They didn't want to come bringing their animals to be sacrificed all the way from Italy or Egypt or even from Syria. They wanted to buy animals when they got there so that they could engage in their act of worship. But when they got there, they didn't have the money that they needed or the kind of currency that they needed to buy these animals, to pay their monetary offerings, and even to pay the temple tax that Jewish families gave on a yearly basis. And so they needed money changers. Those of you who have traveled know this, what this is like. You get off the airplane in Hong Kong or Geneva or London, and there's the booth. (laughs) Currency exchange. And at that moment, you exchange your American dollars for the currency of the country that you're in. And you realize (laughs) that when you do, there's usually a pretty steep markup for these services that are rendered And so here in the temple courts, 
the outer courts of the temple, the place where commoners and Gentiles would worship. There are stacks of cages of animals. There's the bleeding of sheep. There's the roar of commerce. And there's the currency exchangers all looking for the next opportunity. And once you understand all the needs and the swelling of the city and the foreigners that are coming in, you might be tempted to say to yourself, well, that all seems to make sense. These services were needed. But when Jesus enters the temple, he's immediately enraged. The text says that he came in and he turned over the money changers' tables and he took their coins and he dumped it on the ground and he made a whip. He made a whip and started whipping the animals to move them out of the court, through the gate, and into the streets. And all of the sellers of those animals with them. What you see here is righteous indignation. That's the disposition of Jesus here. This isn't the Sunday school Jesus that you might be learning about this morning. This is not the Jesus that gently restores the prostitute or warmly heals the blind man. This Jesus is angry. And it feels out of character for him. And so we must ask, why are these things causing him so much indignation? And the reason is found in the where and the why. The where and the why. Looking carefully at the words of the story, it's apparent that Jesus is not ultimately upset with the what. He's not not particularly concerned about the fact that they're selling animals and changing money. That needed to happen somewhere. But the obvious concern is the where. So let's think about that. Remember what the temple is or the purpose of the temple. It can't be described very simply, but the temple of God is the place where the Jews believed that God resided. It was representative of his presence among his people. When God was near, nothing could destroy them. The story of God's nearness was the story of their fathers and their forefathers. The story of God being near was the story of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And when you reread those stories again, you say, wow, God was close to those men. The story of God's nearness was the story of King David. He loved the nearness of God. And he wasn't alone. So much so that we see in the Psalms expressions of affection just to have God close by. Psalm 27 verse 4 says, One thing I have asked of the Lord, just one thing, this is what I desire. To dwell in the house of the Lord forever, all the days of my life. To gaze on the beauty of the Lord and to seek him in his temple. Or Psalm 43, 3 and 4. Send out your light and your truth. Let let them lead me. Let them bring me to your holy mountain and to the place where you dwell. Or Psalm 63, 2. So I have seen you in the sanctuary to behold, simply to behold your 
power and your glory. Or Psalm 84.10, better is one day, just one day in your courts than a thousand days elsewhere. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of God than to dwell in the tents of the wicked. Enjoying the presence and the nearness of God is indicative of his people who love him. And so, when that presence is being questioned or that nearness is being made very little of, what Jesus comes in and demands is a purity of worship. He doesn't care that they're selling animals and changing money. But how is the sojourner supposed to come and worship the Lord with the roar of the crowd in the space of worship? How can one quietly pray with the incessant interruption of moaning oxen? How can one smell the incense that accompanies the prayers going up to heaven if hundreds, if not thousands of sheep are housed there with all of their excrement? Jesus' concern is for pure worship. Worship without distraction, without alternative motives, without the religious system getting in the way of the true worship that that system was actually supposed to facilitate. I mean, after all, the focal point of the God-man relationship for that season of history was the temple. And it was that very temple and its structures that were getting in the way of pure worship. And so his disciples, it says, would later remember after seeing this tirade of Jesus, Psalm 69.9, zeal for your house will consume me. That is to say, the intense desire for the Lord's house and for the purity of worship there would lead others to attack and kill and even consume. And they pointed to this being one of the reasons for his death. The son was zealous for the pure worship of the Father. Zealous. I wonder if you would say that you are zealous for the worship of the Father as well. To be zealous means to be fervent or impassioned or even obsessed And so the question is, is does the simple recognition of who God is, his nature, his incredible nature, his tremendous deeds, does that lead you to a zealousness in praise of him? Do you give him your best? Or do you give him the leftovers? In the early 1990s, around Thanksgiving time, a radio commentator named Paul Harvey shared a true story of a woman and her frozen Thanksgiving turkey. During that time, Butterball Turkey Company had set up a telephone hotline to answer questions about preparing holiday turkeys. And one woman called in to inquire about cooking a turkey that had been in the bottom of her freezer for 23 years. That's right. True story. 23 years. I don't know how she kept track. 
quite frankly. The Butterball representative told her that her turkey would probably be safe if the freezer had been kept below zero for the entire 23 years. But then the representative warned her that even if the turkey was safe to eat, the flavor would be so diminished and deteriorated to such a degree that she would not recommend eating it. And the caller replied, yeah, that's what I thought. So I think we'll just give it to our church. Sometimes we are content to just give God the leftovers. <laughs> and more than just giving the leftovers to the church. I mean, what we're talking about here and what Jesus is getting to is giving our very best to God himself because we adore him and his nearness to us. But sadly, when it comes to the worship of God, many of us simply just give him our leftovers. We give our best to the Ohio State football game on Saturday. Or our kids' sports on the weekend. Or we reserve our best for our preferences being met in certain experiences at certain times and in certain ways. But to be zealous for God, to be overtaken with worship for Him, for who He is, and that's it. <laughs> Well, that has all kinds of practical implications, doesn't it? It means that we orient ourselves to the central role of worship in our lives, both personally and corporately. That worship becomes important both individually as I go throughout my day and together with my church family as we gather. To be zealous doesn't necessarily mean that you raise your hands and close your eyes when we sing songs. Though it could. But at the very least, it means that you are eager to proclaim his excellencies. To be zealous doesn't mean that you give all of your money away to the Lord and his work. Though it could. But at the very least, it means that you give consistently and faithfully and even generously to the God has given us everything. Being zealous doesn't mean that you read your Bible all day, every day. <laughs> Though it could. But at the very least, to be zealous means that you are eager, eager to hear from him and to learn about him and to have him lead you and direct you in the reading of your Bible and in hearing it preached and in hearing it taught. The son is zealous for the worship of the father. And I hope that we are growing in our zeal as well. But let's go another level. Jesus is not simply or only concerned with the where and the pure worship that it prohibits, though that is a large section of this. He's also concerned with the why. The why of having money changers and selling of animals in the temple courts. And the why is fairly plain. The reason why the trade and commerce had moved into the temple courts instead of out in the villages or in the streets or in the surrounding city of Jerusalem, the reason why it was right there in the middle was due to the love of money 
and to greed. The percentages taken, the controls exhibited by the temple authorities, and all of this was veiled under the cloak of providing spiritual service. Their zeal for money clashed with Jesus' zeal for worship. And to make matters worse, religion was the front for all of it. And for some, the love of money has replaced the love of God. In fact, Jesus even warns in Luke 20, verse 46, and he gives a number of these warnings throughout the time in the Gospels. He says, beware of the scribes who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. They will receive the greater condemnation. Friends, it's not hard to see the parallels today. Creflo Dollar, Benny Hinn, Joel Osteen, countless others who trade on the name of God all to satisfy a love of money and it's absolutely reprehensible behavior. And as we've said before, hypocrites do not do well with Jesus. Especially hypocrites that cloak their sinful greed in the shroud of God himself. And so he drives them out of the courts. Now listen to the response. Look with me at verses 18 to 22. Typically when there's a violent disruption in the middle of a large public place with hundreds if not thousands of people, that includes violence and whips and money, somebody's getting arrested and hauled off. Presumably, the temple leaders knew Jesus, and rather than hauling him away, they simply asked him for a sign. Jesus does a number of signs throughout this first part of John. Some even call it the book of signs, as Jesus displays his authority and power and divinity by doing miraculous things. But they're always on his terms. And these Pharisees wanted a miracle on demand, a sign, a proof that God would further answer to their beck and call and further be domesticated by them. And so they come to Jesus after his outbreak and they say, what sign do you show us for doing these things? (laughs) Now, if they had eyes to see, they would have realized that he just performed the sign (laughs) by purifying the court. But they didn't. And so they asked for a cheap parlor trick to win their allegiance. And so Jesus answers them. Destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. And the Jews says, it's taken 46 years to build this temple and you will raise it up in three days? And here we see Jesus speaking at multiple levels way that only Jesus can. The first level is obviously condemnation. It says to say, you are already destroying the temple by your greed and by your impure worship. You're destroying it, period. But I'm going to restore it. The second level is a level that gives them the offer of a sign that he knows they cannot agree to. Go ahead and physically tear it all down. 
and I'll show you my power and authority by raising it up. It's the perfect catch-22. Jesus is way smarter than them. He's way smarter than you too, just so you know. But he's way smarter than them. And go ahead, tear it down. Oh, oh, you can't? You can't physically do it? Okay, well, then I guess I can't do the sign that you're asking for. But the third level, the most significant level of meaning in this is found in verse 21 itself. It says that he was speaking about the temple of his body. Jesus was foreshadowing the fact that his body would be the one that was torn down and that he would raise again three days later to new life. And what he was showing them by giving them this is the simple but direct condemnation. Look at all this around you. Look at the temple courts. Look at the inner sanctum. Look at the Holy of Holies. God does not reside here anymore. He's gone. This isn't your meeting place with him. I am the new temple. And in these words, Jesus replaces the temple as the place where people meet God. And the proof that I'm the new temple, Jesus said, is the ultimate meeting place with God will be seen in my resurrection. You wanted a sign? I'll give you the best sign. You wanted a parlor trick? I'll give you something infinitely better. You wanted me to show that I am from God and even divine myself? Okay, tear me down. I'll raise myself back up from the dead. And when I do, I will be the meeting place with you for God forever. The ultimate sign of the resurrection guarantees our meeting with God through Jesus. The ultimate sign of the resurrection guarantees our meeting with God through Jesus. That is a wonderful, wonderful truth. No longer will people be required to come to the temple. The temple has come to them. And the fact that Jesus, who's just been referred to in these first couple of chapters as the Lamb of God, is now standing in the temple courts, teaching of his own impending sacrificial death during the Passover festival itself, only enhances the understanding. Just as all of the sacrifices of the Old Testament and leading up to that day were nothing but a mere shadow of the sacrifice of the Lamb of God that would be to come, so too was the temple and its system and the idea of presence a shadow of the presence of God that would be fulfilled in Jesus. And so John 1.14 introduces him, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory. The ultimate sign of the resurrection guarantees our meeting with God through Jesus. There are so many great implications of that. 
we prayed this morning as elders before church started, and I said as we were praying or before we prayed, one of the greatest pieces of news that we have today is no matter what happens this morning, we can be assured of one thing. God will be here. (laughs) We don't have to wonder if he's going to show up. We don't have to wait for the mystical experience to happen or the inner tinglies that happen or the right song or the right preacher that through the person of Jesus, God guarantees our meeting with him. Three or four more quick applications and we're done. What does this mean? A common application of this text that people use is that This means that we shouldn't sell things in the church, right? Jesus didn't like them selling things in the outer courts of the temple, so we shouldn't sell things in the church. How does Jesus' words, how do they inform that? Well, this isn't the temple. All of this isn't the temple. Jesus is the temple. Now, if in any church family there are a variety of activities, including selling things, that result in a distraction to pure worship of Jesus, which is the place where we meet God, well, then we have all kinds of problems. But as far as having a bookstore or a kids selling pepperoni rolls for their fundraiser for the missions trip or, or whatever it might be, this isn't the temple. Jesus is the temple. Number two. I think it's natural for us to want a sign. And this in the book of signs, as I said, and we'll talk more about this in the, as we go through the Gospel of John. But I just want to address it initially to say, should we expect a sign? Should we demand a sign? Should we long for a sign? God, I, I, I believe in you. I know you're real, but help me, help me have greater faith by showing me a sign. Give me a supernatural experience or something that that will just help me know that you're with me today. I don't want to be alone. Life is hard. I'm lonely. I'm depressed. Whatever it might be, show me a sign that you're here. And sometimes God still does those supernatural signs. But should we want it, long for it, expect it, demand it? God has already given you the greatest sign. The resurrection of Jesus. There will be no greater sign in your Christian life and experience than that. And remember, just remember the nature of faith, that Christianity is a religion of faith. And faith is a hope or a trust in things unseen. And so, no, I don't think we should expect or demand or long for signs. Number three. Somebody might say, I've always thought of certain sacred spaces as places to meet God. How does Jesus' words here inform that? Well, certainly we know that our environment, the environment around us, may change our experience of an event or our perception of what is happening. But there is no cathedral, chapel, or church building that will guarantee you a meeting with God. There's no mystical experience under the stained glass in the dark corner of the ancient cathedral with 
the choir singing low in the background that will guarantee you the opportunity to meet with God. There's no worship music on the platform of any church in the land that will guarantee you the place where you can meet God. There's only one place to meet God, Jesus. And so sacred spaces, as they are sometimes called, are only helpful insofar as they help us to meet with Jesus. Number four, if Jesus is the only meeting place for God the Father, then certainly the implication highlights again his exclusive claims. If he's the only way to meet with God, the only place, the only temple, then no other religious systems or beliefs access God by other means. There's not multiple roads up the same mountain. There's not you believe in Jesus and I'll say the chant. There's not I'll make the pilgrimage and you can believe in Jesus. What Jesus is saying as clearly as he possibly can is, I'm the place where you meet with God. And the sign for that is my resurrection. The ultimate sign of the resurrection guarantees us meeting with God through Jesus. Jimmy decided that he was going to go to church on Sunday. He wasn't the church-going type. But his co-worker, Susan, was telling him about her relationship with God. She had such a peace about her. She had a certainty about her purpose. She seemed to have a calm and a hope. And since he had known Susan, he began to desire what she had. She had invited him to church many times over the three years that they worked together. But today, he was finally going to go. He had that curious combination of trepidation and excitement. He didn't sleep well the night before, but he was as ready as he could be. And so he got up, he put on his nice clothes, and he drove to the church. He didn't know who he was going to talk to that day or what to expect. And he was 30 minutes early. But he just thought to himself that maybe if he could come early and meet God before the service started, the whole thing would be a little less awkward for him. Five minutes later, Susan walked in, and she was absolutely blown away to see him there. What are, what are you doing here, she expressed. And he explained that he had been observing her and what he was feeling and what he was thinking. And he talked about how he was a bit nervous. And he said, I, hope, I was hoping that if I came early, I could meet God before the service started. Here? She replied. Yes, he sheepishly responded. Oh, he's not like here in the building, Susan said. But let me show you where he is. Let me introduce you to Jesus. And upon hearing about him, he met God and believed. The ultimate sign of the resurrection guarantees our meeting with God through Jesus and for that we are eternally grateful friends please pray with me father I am so thankful that we don't have to wonder 
We don't have to wonder where you are, where you will be, wondering if you'll come and show us, show up today as we sing and as we pray and as we hear from your word. We don't have to wonder because we know what Jesus promises. And we thank you that he's come to dwell among us in such a fashion that we are guaranteed audience with you. Help us today to more fully appreciate your nearness and your presence. And let us let it compel in us a zeal for your worship. For the sake of your glory. Amen.